0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Beyond Airway Inflammation, Examining the Potential Clinical Utility of Mucus Plugging and Airway Hyperresponsiveness in Severe Asthma to Assess Severity and Guide Biologic Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash vqt860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: Welcome to this educational activity on the potential clinical utility of mucus plugging and airway hyperresponsiveness in severe asthma. My name is Jonathan Corn from the David Guffen School of Medicine at UCLA, and I'll be joined today by Mario Castro from the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Our goals for today's symposium are first to discuss the role of mucus plugging and airway hyperresponsiveness as contributory factors to airway obstruction, increased decline in lung function, and symptom severity in severe asthma and their implications for treatment, to employ the use of high-resolution CT scanning of the lungs and the routine workup of patients with poorly controlled asthma to identify the presence of mucus plugs, and finally to apply recent insights into the role of mucus plugging and airways hyperresponsiveness, as well as the latest clinical evidence to guide selection of biologic treatment for patients with severe asthma. So we're going to start with a case study of a 42-year-old man with increasing asthma over the past couple of years. He's been unable to control his asthma with his current inhaled corticosteroid and long-acting beta-agonist combination therapy, or with prior trials that he had had with ipratropium bromide and monoleukast. He has had four exacerbations over the past year requiring oral corticosteroids, and most of these episodes were not preceded by an obvious viral infection. Some important associated history includes chronic nasal congestion and thick postnasal drip, which is clear to slightly yellow in color. He has occasional episodes of heartburn, and his current medications include fluticasone, thilantrol, 200 slash 25 micrograms daily. And an important point of environmental history is that he lives close to the beach and works out of his home, he has no pets, and he smoked tobacco briefly back in college and smokes cannabis occasionally today. We turn to his examination and relevant lab results. His blood pressure is normal at 132 over 86, with a pulse of 76, and oxygen saturation of 97%. His head, eye, ear, nose, and throat exam do show moderate bilateral nasal mucosa swelling, but was otherwise normal, and his lung demonstrate high-pitched wheezing at the bases bilaterally. His labs include a CBC and differential, which show a hematocrit of 42, a white blood count of 8.5 thousand with 5% eosinophils, which give us an absolute eosinophil count of 425 cells per microliter of blood. His total IgE was elevated at 470 international units, and allergy skin testing had some important relevant positives to dust mites, aspergillus fumigatus, and alternaria alternata. An aspergillus IgG was also ordered, but did not show the presence of any IgG. His pulmonary function testing and imaging demonstrated an FVC of 72% of predicted with an FEV1 of 58% of predicted, giving us a ratio of 0.65 consistent with lower airways obstruction. His FEF 2575% was 37% of predicted. Thoracic gas volume, a good measure of lung volume, was measured at 134% of predicted. And his DLCO to VA ratio was 82% of predicted, which is normal. His exhaled nitric oxide level was 48 parts per billion, markedly elevated. His chest X-ray showed diffuse parabronchial thickening and small airways of basilar atelectasis without any infiltrates or cardiac enlargement. And a sinus CT was also ordered, showing mild mucosal thickening in the maxillary and anterior ethmoid sinuses, but no evidence of nasal polyposis or any air fluid levels consistent with active infection. A high-resolution CT scan was also ordered, and I'd like to offer this up to Dr. Casper to
0: make a comment. Thank you, Jonathan. I think the remarkable areas are noted there in the right mid lung, which demonstrate these large distal bronchi that are filled with mucus, show that dense kind of solid mucus color that leads to that opacification. There also appears to be some more subtle areas in the periphery of the lung that we would, you know, term kind of a bronchiolectasis type of finding. But Pretty impressive for mucus plugging.
1: Yeah, I, I would agree completely with that. And I think this is a great point to segue into some very, very interesting recent research that Dr. Castro has been involved in and, and kind of get us up to speed with this issue of CT scanning in patients with severe asthma.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. First, want to review what are mucus plugs. So these are really just a balance of water, mucin, and other proteins and salts that form this mucus. And importantly, in our patients with severe asthma, they develop a predominance of MUC5AC. This protein makes them quite sticky, and then that causes these mucus gels that make those plugs. We know when those plugs happen in these airways, depending if it's kind of more the large airways or more distal airways, it can cause distal to that, some atelectasis, air trapping, and if significant enough, and a more proximal airway oxygen desaturation. On this slide, we're going to review one of the key papers that we worked on as part of the Severe Asthma Research Program, or SARP. This study was led by Eleanor Duncan And what we did in this study was we very carefully studied CT scans from 146 individuals with asthma, 22 healthy controls. And we had a panel of five chest radiologists that read these independently. They read them after our training session of how to read these mucus plugs. They're all familiar with it. We wanted to make it more consistent. And we had them train it without knowing the disease state, you know, if this was a normal individual or an asthmatic. So this picture in the center demonstrates what we're looking for on the CT where there's a completely plugged airway. Airways that are partially plugged are not counted towards this score. And as noted on the far right, there are, you know, these each bronchopulmonary segments colored differently for display purposes here, obviously not in a CT scan, but in that segment, then we count a plug. And this next slide demonstrates if you have a plug within one segment that counts as one or no segments, it would be zero. Therefore, since there are 20 segments in the line, 10 on the left, 10 on the right, you could have a score anywhere from zero to 20. We then created these categorical groupings. And if you look at the high group, that's four more segmental plugs. The zero, of course, is having none across all those 20 segments. And then low would be kind of in between, somewhere, you know, one to three plugs that would put you in that category. Now, when we look at this recent study by Rory Chain, what they did was they mapped kind of what the distribution is of these mucus plugs. And this was a separate study, not the one we did in SARP. And in this, they demonstrated that the highest mucus plugging was in the lower lobes. And I'll show you some data from SARP that again shows similar distribution, but demonstrating this predominance of the lower lobes, maybe related to gravity, maybe related to compressive effects of surrounding structures, but it's in those lower dependent areas that we see the majority of the mucus plugs, less so in those mid zones and a little bit more in the upper zones. Now this slide, I wanted to go back to the SARP study and describe a little bit better that population. And you can see here that if you then use these dichotomous scores or in those three different categories, zero, low, and high, and you look at their clinical characteristics, some pretty remarkable findings. First, you see that the patients that have high MICA scores are a little bit older. They have really a little bit more severe asthma. So if you look at that severe asthma proportion, 90%, keep in mind in SARP, we enrolled both severe and non severe patients. So They can distribute across these categories in any way, and certainly the severity seemed to be highest in that high mucus plug group. But importantly, this also is associated with marked reduction in lung function with an average FE1 of 56% of predicted. And then lastly, you'll note that there are a number of elevated T2 markers in this high mucus plug group with 7% eosinophil count, absolute eosinophil count of 459, mildly elevated phenol at 28. And you can see the proportion of bronchiectasis is present in every group, a little bit higher in that high mucus plug group. So, what are the consequences of mucus plugging? As demonstrated here, we know that it's associated with increased airflow obstruction. So, again, that proximal mucus plug, distal airflow obstruction, increased need for asthma medications, resulting in more exacerbations and increased risk of persistent airway infections. On this next slide, there's an important point we're often asked, well, can you measure mucus production just by asking patients? And in fact, in Sarp, we did that and using the chronic bronchitis definition. And what we found was that, in fact, in that high mucus plug group, 60% did not report any chronic bronchitis symptoms. So there's really a dissociation with the reporting of symptoms and the presence of these mucus plugs. As noted here, we see a mucus plug in that right mid lun region. There, actually, in the right upper lobe. But you know, you can see where that yellow arrow is. Is what we're thinking is a significant mucus plug obstructing that distal airway. And really, the CT scan is the best way to do this, because you can look at these coronal views. You can look at various three dimensional views to allow you to look at this mucus plug. If you were to trying to do this through the airways with bronchoscope, it would be very difficult to do, and certainly more invasive. Now, our next one, uh. Share with you a little bit more about the distribution of those mucus plugs and how does that associate or not associate with bronchiectasis? And you can see here the distribution of bronchiectasis. The majority of patients, eighty percent, did not have any bronchiectasis, a grade zero. And if you look at the distribution of the bronchiectasis and those red bars, you can see that pretty much in all lobes, all five lobes, it's present. What's important though is, as you look at that bottom right, is that. You know, when you think about bronchiectasis, it doesn't have to be associated with mucus plugging, or you can say the opposite. You can also say that you don't need bronchiectasis in order to have a plugged airway. Now, this next slide demonstrates this, again, more detailed relationship with lung function. And again, those dark blue bars are the high mucus plug group. And you can see that they have the significant reduced lung function with an average FEV1, again, you know, in that mid-50s. But it's also reduced for a force capacity as well as the ratio. And look on the far right, you can see that the vast majority of these patients with that high mucus plug have, you know, significant airflow obstruction with a percent predicted FEV1 of less than 60%. Now, what potentially is driving that? Well, what we argued in this paper was that it could be T2 inflammation, kind of an unchecked T2 inflammation. And again, despite taking kind of what are the you know, GINA or NAPP standard of care therapy for high-dose ICS and long-acting bronchodilators, because that was a requirement in order to meet that definition that we used in the SART program for severe asthma. And what this demonstrates is that on the far left, that there's a direct correlation between scores and airway eosinophils. The higher the eosinophilia in the sputum, the higher the score on average. When we look at T2 markers, so we did a T2 gene mean, based on the peripheral blood, looking at gene expression for T2 cytokines, IL-4, 5, and 13. You can see here that that high mucus plugs group in the dark blue bar, again, the highest levels of IL-13 and highest levels of IL-5. So clearly they have evidence of both indirect measures of T2 inflammation, like sputum eosinophilia, as well as direct measures by doing PCR-based analysis for T2 cytokines. Importantly, as noted on this next slide, is that there's an association with eosinophilic products. So we measured in the sputum eosinophil peroxidase. And what's demonstrated here, again, is that there's a correlation between that and sputum eosinophils, which would not be too surprising, more eosinophils, more EPO. But what is kind of striking is in that high mucus plug group in the far right it has the highest levels of EPO. Now, I want to build on that story that was led by Eleanor Dunikin and share some work from Monica Tain and really builds nicely in that story is one of the benefits we have in SARP is that we can follow these patients longitudinally. And in SARP, when we started doing longitudinal follow-up, now we have some patients that have been followed for 10 years. And so we're gaining more and more information about if you can really well characterize somebody and you can follow their phenotype, what happens to that phenotype over time? And so what I would argue is that we've now identified a mucus plug phenotype. Now the question is, does that mucus plug phenotype change over time? So in this paper, we examined 164 patients that were enrolled in the SARC cohort that had repeat CT scans three years later. And as demonstrated here in this patient in the top row and the repeat scan three years later, that same mucus plug persists over time. What is the consequence of that? Well, again, as that mucus plug persist we now know that this is something that is correlated with the change in blood eosinophils or the change in airway eosinophils so another way to think about this is if you have unchecked t2 inflammation and you're seeing increase in t2 biomarkers you're also seeing an increase in mucus plugging so again this kind of associates cause and effect right and that you're seeing unchecked t2 inflammation increasing And then you're seeing increasing in mucous plug. Now, I'm next going to move to a different group. And this is a group from Canada, Sarah Svenenson's study, showing a new technology, a relatively new technology, called hyperpolarized gas MRI. And with hyperpolarized gas MRI, it's demonstrated in panel A there on the top left. You'll see that the patient inhales the hyperpolarized gas. And when they inhale it, normally the MRI of a lung is black. You, know, you can't see anything because it's assessing protons. And what you see because of the polarization of that gas is now you can actually see complete ventilation all the way out into the distal areas of the lung. And so parts of the lung that are not getting adequate gas, hyperpolarized gas, In this particular instance is using hyperpolarized helium. We also use xenon to polarize to do this studies. And you can see that there's a large segment in this left lung where it's just not getting any gas. On the panel B is that same subject, and you can look at their CT scan, and again, mucus plug is right there. So we think this is the culprit, right? That the mucus plugging is leading to this ventilation defect that is affecting 31% of the lobe. And in this study, smaller study than the other two we presented, but in this study, there were 27 adults that they assessed, both with MR as well as CT, and a number of other inflammatory parameters, and they found mucus plugging about 67%, pretty similar to our greater than 50% in SARP. And again, they confirmed in this group worsening airflow obstruction, worsening air trapping, and that these mucus scores were associated with, again, airway eosinophils, like we showed you from SARP, but also in the speedum, if you measured IO4 levels, as well as exhaled nitric oxide. I wanna delve a little bit deeper into the study that we briefly spoke about by Rory Chain and colleagues and Jackie just published this year, checking practice this year. So how did this differ from the earlier Sarp study and the Canadian study was that this was a real world study. They This is in Dublin, Ireland and, and Brian Lipsworth group where they have kind of systematically followed these patients in severe asthma clinics and they characterize them with CT scans. Well, what they did was they went back and looked at these patients' CT scans, and they looked at, you know, over time, what were the consequences of mucus plugging. And what they found again was that mucus plugging, again, was associated with higher likelihood of impairment of lung function, so reduced FE1 FC ratio, higher likelihood of having exacerbations requiring steroids. And importantly, in addition to the eosinophilia, they also found elevations in IgE. As well as specific IgE to Aspergillus fumigatus, and in fact, if you had a positive titer IgE titer to Aspergillus fumigatus, you had a ninefold increased risk of having mucus plugging. So again, to me, this demonstrates that there's likely an etiology here that's leading to those mucus plugs, and that you have unchecked T two inflammation, you have inflammation kind of triggered in response to a fungi, and this causes you know the mucus plugging that we see in these patients. On this next slide, we then look at the distribution in that longitudinal study by Monica Tain over time. And you can see that in the purple there, this is what's called a Sankey plot. You look at, you know, the color differences, you know, do they go from one category to another? And you can see that the majority of these patients that have mucus plugs at baseline, 51% persist out to year three, 56%, a little bit more even, right? And if you look at the segments on the right-hand side that they're distributed, in the vast majority of these mucus plugs stay in that same segment over time. Well, this next slide, again, a little bit more detail about the location and what happens to that plug over time. In the light blue or information about that persistent plug, they were in a segment and then three years later, they were in that same segment. Whereas in the purple, it demonstrates what's happening to those intermittent plugs where they had a plug present at baseline or at year three, but not at both time points. And so I think you can quickly look at this and see that the majority are intermittent, but pretty significant number of persistent plugs. If you look at the location here, again, looking at the right lower lobe and left lower lobe on panel C, you'll note that again, there is um, slightly higher incidence of persistent plugging and intermittent plugging in those locations. When we look at again, what are the associated consequences of this mucus plugging and how it changes over time? What demonstrates here is that again, an inverse correlation with lung function. So as lung function worsens over time, that's associated with a worsening mucus plug score. So it's a you know positive on this axis on the x-axis here. Whereas if you're looking at evidence of air trapping, again, there's an association with worsening air trapping. With association with worsening in the mucus plug score, again suggesting that there's a direct relationship and consequence of that mucus plugging on the distal air trapping that occurs in these patients. We're now going to shift over to talking about kind of what our understanding is about airway hyperresponsiveness, and this is going to set the stage for Dr. Korn to really give us some of the latest information about impact of biologics on mucus plugging and airway hyperresponsiveness. So I know a number of you probably know this already, but just to define that area of hyperresponsiveness, it's this excessive or hyperreactivity that occurs in our patients in response to any stimuli. And it can be present in even, you know normal individuals if you you know give enough of uh, agonist. So this graph on the right demonstrates what happens with methacholine, And you can see again that in terms of drop in lung function, patients with asthma drop at a much lower concentration of methacholine than a healthy individual. If you give enough methicoline to somebody, yes, they're gonna bronchoconstrict and drop lung function. But this shift in the curve to the left demonstrates that increased hypersensitivity patients with asthma have with methicoline bronchobromication. So this is a characteristic feature of all of our patients with asthma. This variability that we see in airway hyperresponsiveness Appears to be related to the underlying kind of inflammatory response that our patients have. Next slide demonstrates that it's not only related to that inflammatory response, but it's also related to airway remodeling. And you can think about as that smooth muscle mass grows, you know, I sometimes call my severe asthmatics that are just, you know, have all the smooth muscle surrounding their bronchus, they're like the Arnold Schwarzenegger's of asthma, you know, they have this. Huge muscle mass that is very hyperreactive in, in bronchoconstructing. So again, association with inflammation and remodeling tied to airway hyperresponsiveness. Now, on this next slide, important points about airway hyperresponsiveness is that it is the presence of airway hyperresponsive is associated with an increased decline, accelerated decline in lung function, and importantly, it's not just symptomatic individuals but also asymptomatic individuals. And in fact, in the studies that we have done and others, when we measure this in children, follow them over time. What we've demonstrated is that these recurrent wheezers have bronchial hyperactivity at much higher rates, and they develop asthma at a higher frequency. And this likely explains that connection between recurrent wheeze, often due to viruses early in life, and the development of asthma into adulthood. And then, lastly, is that again the severity of that hyperresponsiveness is linked to subsequent risk for exacerbations and asthma severity. Now, this next slide demonstrates nicely what's happening when we think about the various ways that we can measure airway hyperresponsiveness. And in general, we think the specificity is around ninety percent, but the sensitivity is significantly lower, and it really depends on what population you're testing us. We'll see in a subsequent study. And so we think about measures of hyperresponsiveness as either being a direct agonist on the smooth muscle and activating the smooth muscle, such as we do with methacholine or histamine, resulting in bronchoconstriction. Or above that dotted line, you can see the indirect stimulators of bronchial hyperactivity or indirect stimulators of smooth muscle. And so that can be mannitol, hypertonic saline, exercise, allergen-induced. I want to share with you this study by Aaron and colleagues from Canada. Because I think it points out a lot about when you go looking to demonstrate somebody has asthma, you find that there's a significant number of patients out there that have been diagnosed but truly don't have asthma. And so this is where I use bronchohyperactivity testing is that helps me in those patients that I'm being referred to that are not responding to asthma medicines, you know, their doctor has really struggled with getting them under control. And I'm asked to see them then. And I said, well, first thing I always ask is, is the diagnosis right? You know, do they have some other explanation? And in fact, in this large study of 700 adults with physician-diagnosed asthma in the community, and you know, they took this sampling in Canada and they put them through rigorous testing. What they did was they brought them in, and you know, after withhold of medications, they did bronchodilator testing. If they had a positive bronchodilator test; they would be diagnosed with asthma. They didn't, which you know, we know from bronchodilator testing, it's relatively insensitive. Then they went on to a methacholine provocation. They then, if they were negative again after methylcholine, they cut their medications by fifty percent, the inhaled steroid by fifty percent, and waited four weeks and repeated it again. And once again, they retested them. If they were negative, then they would, you know, withhold all their asthma medications and repeat the testing again four weeks later. So they went through this rigorous protocol to really understand, you know, how many patients are out there misdiagnosed, and lo and behold, one out of three had some other diagnosis. They were misdiagnosed as asthma. This study also importantly followed these patients for another year and the vast majority of 30% continued to exhibit no symptoms of asthma after being withdrawal from their medication. So this indicates again, that the majority of these patients you roll out you know, you can safely follow these patients without asthma medications, which I also like to say when I go through this protocol with my patients, it is a benefit, right? Because every medicine and a lot of these patients are already on four or five medications, polypharmacy, for their asthma may not be necessary and they may be suffering side effects from those medications. So this is a very helpful point about bronchial hyperactivity testing is that it helps you discontinue a therapy that's inappropriate. This last study I would like to talk about is that, again, you have to think about the underlying population that you're studying. This was done through the ALA, Asthma, Airways Clinical Research Centers, studied by Dr. Sumino. And in there, we tested over 100 subjects with diagnosed asthma. And we found that the overall sensitivity of methylcholine is actually a little bit on the low side, around 77% but even lower in whites, 69%, and a little bit higher in African-Americans. We don't know the reason for that, but there is a difference depending on the underlying race. And then also importantly, there's a difference depending on whether or not they're atopic or non-atopic as well. So keep those in mind as you order this testing. Sometimes you have to repeat the testing, right, because of that lower sensitivity that occurs. just to briefly summarize, again, what we've described is this new Mucus plug phenotype the importance of CT scans and doing your evaluation of patients, the importance of measuring airway hyperresponsiveness in your patients, and how can that lead to you know, clarifying the diagnosis, but also understanding their degree of hyperreactivity and the consequences of that. So I'll now turn it over to Dr. Goren to, to talk about the potential role for biologics in these entities.
1: Thank you, Mario, very much. And, and thanks really for a wonderful foundation. As we move on to some of the therapeutic aspects. So we'll start with the issue, do we have current strategies for reducing mucus plugging that actually works? And we really don't have too many options. Hypertonic saline certainly can be used by nebulizer. Some physicians do have some success with that in some patients. Mucolytics, and there's not a lot of options available currently, and and the ones that we do have have not really demonstrated to have a lot of efficacy. There is a novel saccharide carbohydrate compound that's under evaluation and we await those results to see if they'll be useful to our patients. Macrolides certainly have been employed in patients particularly with type 2 low asthma, patients who don't have elevation of their bloody eosinophil count or exhaled nitric oxide, and very often these are administered to patients who have severe asthma with frequent exacerbations and cough. So if we turn to our next issue, which is what are the biologic targets that may have some relevance to mucus plugging? And our graphic here shows the airway epithelium releasing compounds known as alarmins, which are cytokines derived from the epithelium. I think the one we know most about at this point in time is thymic stromal or TSLP. And, and this does lead to a downstream cascade of inflammatory mediators and cytokines that are relevant to mucus production, and we can block this using a newly approved molecule called tezepelumab. Now, since TSOP has effects on important, both innate and adaptive immune cells, IL-4 and IL-13 are generated after TSOP stimulates the system, and we have dupelumab available to block both IL-13 and IL-4 at the level of the receptor. And then finally, we understand that IL-4 and IL-13 and IL-5, all in concert, can have a very large effect on inflammation, including the, the activation and release of eosinophils from the bone marrow, where they travel their way up to the lung. And we know that IL-5 is critical to eosinophilic asthma, and we have molecules that can block this, including mepolizumab and reslizumab, which are both IL-5 antagonists and bind directly to IL-5. But we've also got benralizumab which binds to the IL-5 receptor, thus causing apoptosis of eosinophils and basophils. And all of these molecules have been shown to have a salutary effect on asthma. And then finally, IgE, which sits on the surface of mast cells and basophils, and once cross-linked allergen, has the capacity to activate those cells, which then release their contents, things like leukotrienes and prostaglandins, which can affect mucus production significantly. So, if we turn to the role of some of these particular blockers and antagonists in preventing mucus plugging and treating mucus plugging in patients with severe asthma, there was a study done by McIntosh et al. who took 29 patients who had severe, poorly controlled eosinophilic asthma. They had mucus scores which did significantly improve with benralizumab. But we're going to walk our way through some of that data in a moment with dissolution and decrease in mucus plugging. But I think very dramatically what was seen was MRI ventilation improvement at day 28 days, which is only after a single dose of benralizumab, and in persisted as patients continue to receive their therapy for a full two and a half years. And if we look at some of these graphics on this slide, we can see FEV1, a small increase as we go from baseline to the 2.5 year time point. But with regard to ACQ6, again, very dramatic changes, which were seen after a single treatment and then continued on over two years. If we look at pheno here, we see, I think, less clear evidence. There was a statistically significant p-value comparing day 28 and day 2.5 years. But again, we don't see a, a huge effect on this, which we wouldn't really expect because um, this is not an IL-13 antagonist, which would be expected to have more dramatic effects on XL nitric oxide. But what Dr. Castor introduced us to, this idea of ventilation defect percentage looking at how much of the lung improves with regard to ventilation, and we can see as we go from baseline, at each of these time points, there's really a dramatic improvement. We can see a, if we go to the lower level of graphs, we can see a dramatic improvement in mucus plugging, a small increase in total airway count, along with lumen area, which really reflects the dissolution of these mucus plugs with the opening of the airways, and then some diminution, not particularly important as we go through the study in terms of wall thickness. If we look at the effect of benralizumab on mucus plugging and severe asthma, I think this particular picture really tells it a thousand words. From the perspective, we can see a fully plugged bronchus. And then as we go out through therapy for two and a half years, there's dissolution of that plugging and opening of the airway. If we try to put some of these things into context in a different study, in this case, 12 patients who received in an open-label fashion benrolizumab and underwent CT scanning before and after four months of treatment, if we look at the far left graphic, we can see that mucus plugging count dropped quite dramatically. If we look at sputum eosinophils, as we would expect with benrolizumab, there's a marked reduction, and this was, I think, one of the first times this was demonstrated, and then finally, If we look at ECP, which is a product of eosinophils, again, we're seeing a marked diminution, also showing that along with this reduction in eosinophil counts, we're probably getting a reduction in the eosinophils that do enter the airway in terms of their activation. Again, looking at, I think, CT scans is always very useful. In this case, we're looking at a case report in which a patient received Dupelomab who had pre existing mucus plugging, and this patient did have severe eosinophilic asthma. We can see on the left that there is some mucus plugging, particularly in the right side of the scan, but after several months of treatment, we can see what happens to those mucus plugs, and they are markedly diminished. Again, potentially showing a role for Dupelomab in patients with plugging, and this is currently being I think, sought out in a large placebo-controlled study where we can really determine what is the reduction with dupilumab. As I mentioned earlier, tezepelumab, the most recently approved of the biologics in asthma. What we're going to be looking at is data from a study called Cascade, which did involve patients undergoing not only measures of hyper hyperresponsiveness, but also CT scanning and bronchoscopy. And I think the first thing we want to note in this placebo-controlled study is that mucus plug scores diminished really quite dramatically. And we can see that in the left-handed set of graphs compared with those patients who received placebo. And this reduction in mucus score was correlated, importantly, with improvements in lung function. So again, we're tying in a clinically relevant outcome to these changes that we find on CT scanning. And as we did with both benralizumab as well as stupelimab, we're seeing the effects on an actual CT scan where we can see an opening with a diminution in mucus in a particular bronchopulmonary segment. We've looked at this idea of mucus plug scores, I think it's also useful to really quantitate it a bit differently by looking at patients who either had no plugging or plugging as well as people who had a high level of plugging, low level, and zero plugging as Dr. Castro pointed out earlier in the symposium. And what we can see was during the cascade study, as we go through treatment with tezapelumab and we look at no plugs in the upper left-hand corner of these graphics, we can see that that number of patients with no plugs really increased dramatically by nearly 80%. And if we look at the next, which is placebo, in the far upper right, we can find that this particular measure is extremely consistent over time, with no real change in the no-plugging versus plugging groups. If we then look at a more semi-quantitative measure of what's going on, and we really focus on patients who had zero plugging, with tizopelumab, we can see that nearly doubles. The patient with a low level of plugging was fairly constant, but what was eliminated completely was the patients who had a high level of plugging. And again, when we compare with this with placebo in the lower right-hand set of bar graphs, we can see that, again, a very consistent finding in placebo without any real change over the time of study. So one of the things we'd like to look at again are what are some of the functional consequences of this marked reduction in plugging that we saw with tezapelumab. And what we're looking at in the upper left as well as central upper graphics. We're looking at FEV1 at a pre-bronchodilator level. And I want you to focus on the two orange graphs at the far left and then as we move rightward. And we can see that in the far left, we're looking at patients who received tezapelumab but had no plugging. And if we look at the group of patients, the subset who had plugging, this is where you really see the improvement in pre FEV1, both in this upper left and the central graph shown. And when we look at placebo, there was no real change during the time of the administration of the placebo treatment. And we really see, again, that there was no change between patients who received tezapelumab who had no plugging at baseline in comparison with the placebo group. So again, plugging seemed to be a very prime determinant of baseline FEV1 and changes in FEV1. And if we look at the upper right, we're looking at FEF 2575. Here again, we are seeing a change compared with placebo. In ACQ6 and change in FEC, which are the lower left and middle left at the lower level, we're not really seeing much of a change there. So studies have been done with a number of biologics looking at a number of different provocateurs of bronchial hyperresponsiveness or airways hyperresponsiveness. And in the next table, we're looking at a number of studies that have been done including omalizumab in three studies, mepolizumab in two, and tezapelumab in two. We're looking at a wide range of different agonists used to provoke bronchospasm, from acetylcholine to methylcholine to AMP to histamine, and most recently with tezapelumab, the use of mannitol. And we're going to comment on that in a moment. In one of these studies, in fact, one with omalizumab, this was a primary outcome, as well as in a recent study with tezapelumab. And if we look at the actual data found in these studies, we can see that the difference with 95% confidence interval is produced in this particular graphic. And in the far right, if you're interested, you can look at the level of asthma severity, which typically was in mild to moderate to severe patients. And the reason this is important is because obviously you have to have stability of lung function in order to do studies where you're going to be directly provoking bronchospasm. Now, if we look at this data a bit differently, shown as a bar graph, we can see in the vast majority of these studies, in five of the seven studies, there were improvements in bronchial hyperresponsiveness. As you move from the line of identity rightward, this signifies improvements. In two of these, they were statistically significant. In a couple of them, we did not see a significant improvement in airways hyperresponsiveness, irrespective of what agonist was used. Now, if we kind of take a step back and think about one of the key cytokines that I introduced earlier in my section, which is thymic stromal lymphopoetin or TSLP, and look at this effect that it has on airways hyperresponsiveness as well as eosinophilic airway inflammation, keeping in mind that TSLP, as I mentioned earlier, is a huge determinant of what happens downstream. It's really responsible for setting up type 2 inflammation and all of the consequential next steps that take place, such as eosinophilia in the blood and tissue, increases in potential airway hyperresponsiveness, and looking at some of the cellular issues, such as mast cell infiltration and activation, as well as eosinophil influx into the airway itself. And there have been some studies showing that there's a change in mass cell phenotype when you treat with TSLP directly. And this TSLP obviously is it's causing some major changes in the cellular architecture of the lung. And we'd like to know that does blocking TSLP really abrogate some of these issues? So if we go back to a study that was done called the upstream study again where bronchial hyperresponsiveness was one of the main outcomes and as i mentioned earlier we're looking at manitol as the agonist now why would we use manitol instead of histamine or methicoline, which are direct agonists of smooth muscle contraction. And the reason is, is because mannitol is an indirect inducer of airway spasm. As such, mannitol creates a hyperosmolar environment around mast cells, and in fact, the entire cellular milieu of the lower airway. And these changes in concentration of solutes around the mast cell causes a mast cell actually to become activated and degranulate, releasing things like histamine and leukotrienes, and prostaglandins around the airway. And what was shown in this study with tezepelumab is if you treat patients with several weeks of tezepelumab, that as we can see from the graphic, there's actually a shift upward, that it takes more of this manitol to induce bronchospasm, a 15% reduction in airway caliber compared with placebo. And, and this did not reach a level of statistical significance, although at the 12-week time point, we approached statistical significance. And if we look at eosinophil counts, again, comparing placebo in blue with in red for one of the first times in a placebo-controlled study, we can now say that with a upstream biologic such as tezepelumab, that there was a significant reduction in eosinophil levels in the tissue, a 74% reduction compared with 28% reduction in the placebo group. But if we dig a little bit deeper into the data derived from this study, if we look at bronchoalveolar lavage fluid, sputum, and blood, all of these compartments were also significantly affected by the use of with a 75% reduction in the BAL, a 69% reduction, and a 39% reduction in blood. Why do we see a bigger drop in the tissue than we do in the bloodstream? This probably relates to the fact that when you give tezepelumab and block TSLP, you're not only having an effect on interleukin 5, which dictates how many eosinophils actually enter the bloodstream, but you're having a profound reduction in IL-4 and 13 as well. And as we know, these two cytokines really are the gatekeepers for allowing the adhesion molecules to bring those eosinophils into the lung tissue and for regulating some of the key chemokines, like eotaxin-3, which actually attracts eosinophils directly into the lung tissue. So by having an effect in down-regulating IL-5 and IL-4 and 13, we're seeing much bigger effects on how many eosinophils enter the tissue versus the bloodstream. And I think it's a very interesting finding from the study. Exhaled nitric oxide was reduced. It bordered on statistical significance at the 12-week time point with a p-value of 0.06. But again, This is something that has been shown statistically significant in studies that were done in large numbers of patients. Some of the other findings that were noted was that the change in neutrophils and lymphocytes, the change in total IgE and basophils, did not differ between the two study groups, placebo versus tesopelumab. ACQ6 did decrease by one point compared with placebo at 0.5. This was not statistically significantly different, but I think the key issue is that In small numbers of patients, such as studies like this, both upstream and others like it, you really need a much larger sample size in order to see differences in both ACQ6 and AQLQ. And I think, very importantly, adverse events did not differ between the placebo and active group. So, some of the conclusions we can draw from the upstream study was that blocking TSLP for 12 weeks with tezapalumab did not significantly reduce Airways hyperresponsiveness to mannitol, although they did border on statistical significance. However, the proportion of patients without airways hyperresponsiveness to mannitol after 12 weeks of treatment was significantly different between patients receiving tezapelumab versus placebo. And I think to add to that, you know, that growing data that we have about this molecule, treatment with tezapelumab led to a very large reduction in subepithelial and BAL eosinophils at 74 and 75% respectively. There was a trend towards a reduction in airway tissue mass cells of 25%, which I think really brings to light its effect on cells besides the eosinophil. This did not reach statistical significance, but I think it's a tantalizing piece of data that the ability to reduce the number of eosinophils or perhaps the activation of eosinophils, as we saw with the mannitol bronchoprovocation studies, may both play into why this particular medication is useful not only in non allergic, but in allergic asthma as well. Now, there have been other studies that have looked at airway hyperresponsiveness and some of these biologics. Bedrilizumab and mepolizumab were both looked at. These are both drugs that block the effect or antagonize the effect of IL-5. The main endpoint was airway hyperresponsiveness to histamine, and there was some inhibition of this with benrelizumab showing significant more effect than the mepolizumab. But I think it's hard to draw comparisons. We have other molecules that we use frequently for severe asthma, and you can only really judge some of these effects by doing head-to-head trials. So if we look at eosinophil depletion with benralizumab, is also associated with attenuated mannitol, airway hyperresponsiveness, and severe eosinophilic asthma. And again, this is a study that was done where mannitol was given repeatedly over time, similar to what we saw with tezapellumab. And the primary endpoint was out at about 12 weeks. The primary outcome was the doubling difference in provocative dose of mannitol required to decrease F51 by 10%. Improvement in AHR was significant by the eight-week time point with a mean 2.1 doubling doses in PD10 at week 12. And along with this, I think we always like to see whether there are subjective changes in asthma and the mean changes in ACQ and the mini-AQLQ questionnaire were significant by week two and continued to be suppressed over 12 weeks. And peripheral bloody eosinophils were depleted as we would expect because it's a drug by having an effect on interleukin-5 really drops the eosinophil counts very, very low. And this shows the data. On the left, I'd like you to focus on the PD10. You can see it going up at the two-week time point. It pretty much stays at a plateau throughout the rest of the study. On the right, we can see that AQLQ does go up at the two-week time point and stays elevated throughout the entire 12-week study, all the way up to week 24. And if we look at ACQ, a positive effect would be a drop in the score, which we do see throughout this study. Now, this is obviously an area of great interest. There's a number of different studies that are underway to look at the effects of benralizumab, dupilumab, and more work with tezepelumab. really trying to measure the effects on not only airways hyperresponsiveness, but changes in lung function with lung volumes, and, and changes in mucociliary clearance, as is being looked at with dupilumab. So we're gonna get a lot of information about some of these very important outcomes related to function, and hyperresponsiveness and actual airway architecture over the coming months to years. And I think this is gonna really help define the role of these drugs in very important subphenotypes of asthma. So let's now, with all this information that we've learned today in mind, go back to our case study. The 42-year-old man who's had worsening asthma, and we were able to identify by high-resolution CT scanning that he had significant mucus plugging. So Mario, I'd like to give the question to you. How would you consider treating this patient?
0: Well, thanks, Jonathan. I first think about the biomarkers that you nicely presented. This patient had significant bloody eosinophilia. Of course, we don't have direct measures of airway, but that should be a good surrogate. We also know that this patient has many positive specific IgEs to dust mites and molds that were detected. And I think that together with the presence of the mucus plugs indicates to me that there is T2 inflammation that is driving this patient's disease. That's also supported by the XL nitric oxide, which was elevated in this patient. So when we think about, you know, the biologics therapies that we have available today, and this patient is clearly not responding to the current step four level of care that we would see in the GINA guidelines, we would think about in terms of stepping up now, moving to a biologic therapy in this particular individual. I think I would like to use something that you've presented the evidence behind that it works in this area. And so I, I think when we think about tezepelumab, that would be a great upstream blocker that potentially would modify the mucus plugging that you saw in this patient, improve their lung function, reduce their exacerbation risk. I would say that, you know, it'd still be reasonable to treat that patient with an anti-IL5 because, you know, we have demonstrated bloody eosinophilia. We don't know clearly what's the culprit here leading to that mucus plugging. Is it the eosinophil byproducts that we talked about that caused that mucus plug in this patient? And therefore, by inhibiting in, we'll review that mucus plugging. You just don't have that data. We had a little bit of data that we, you know, shared in terms of Benra, but not a lot of data yet. And then lastly, I think when we think about using anti-IL-4 receptor blocker like dupilumab, certainly this patient has elevation of T2 biomarkers, and you would think an IL-4 receptor blocker will work in this individual. But we're still waiting for evidence from dupilumab in terms of its effect on structural effects like mucous plugging and so there's a little bit less evidence for that, but certainly would be a reasonable choice in this patient. And I, I think all three of those classes, I would say, are reasonable to proceed with, see what your response is, measure that response, you know, four five months later, and then decide if you need to move to another therapy. What do you think, Jonathan?
1: Yeah, I think those are excellent points, Mario. The one thing I would add would be, when we look at the mechanisms of these drugs, and they're all somewhat different, it's interesting because tezapelumab, by having an effect... On uh, not only IL 5 with the eosinophil entry into the bloodstream, but by having an effect on IL 4 and 13 as well, we've seen reductions in IgE in the large phase 2b and phase 3 studies. We've seen changes in specific allergen reactivity in some smaller studies that have been done. And we've seen reduction in the key biomarkers in terms of both blood ESNFLs as well as exhaled nitric oxide. So I think by this patient who is markedly allergic, I think tezapelumab offers some very appealing mechanisms of action that might really fit this patient very well. But as you mentioned, there are other drugs that probably would help this patient as well, but perhaps tezapelumab overall would have the best approach of all the existing drugs. I agree. So in summary, The mucus scar represents a very important biomarker of asthma spherity and it really helps us define a subphenotype of asthma. Patients that do plug and the consequences this has on their lung function and future exacerbations. And I think we've been able to correlate that plugging with other type 2 inflammatory biomarkers and some of this helps us really predict what kind of a drug will work best for this subphenotype of asthma. We've looked at some of that data today. And when we summarize all of this data, I think it's important to know which therapies really do reduce mucus plugging and address the issue of airways hyper understanding that this will have a potentially powerful effect on our patients' lives and what kind of a future they will have regarding their asthma. So I'd like to thank Dr. Castro for joining me in this symposium. I myself found it to be fascinating. Lots of new data, lots of important data. And I hope all of you can take this back to the clinic and employ it in your own practices. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash VQT 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from AstraZeneca LP.